Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. The year is 2050. We humans started exploring Mars 20 or so years ago. Electric car batteries can charge in just 10 minutes and our smartphones are now powered by sweat. That really is a possibility, by the way. Uh, It was actually being trialled last year in 2020. Gross and amazing in equal parts, right? Anyway... In 2050, the world's population is teetering around 10 billion people, an extra person for every four on the planet back in 2021. China is the world's largest economy, followed by India, the USA and then Indonesia. And we're either just about avoiding a climate emergency or we're firmly in the middle of one. Gulp. Let's stick with the bold, maybe desperate optimism for now, though. The roads are less congested because we've turned to drones and flying taxis. In fact, no one really owns a car anymore. Or a smartphone, for that matter. Not after the big digital detox of 2047. Okay, yeah, sorry. Uh, I got a little bit carried away there. Uh, Also a little bit too optimistic, I think. You know, experts do predict that technology will help find solutions to the biggest problems we're facing today. But as we know, predictions don't always come true. In 1964, the Rand Corporation presented a long-term forecasting report. They put questions to 82 experts across various fields, asking them to make a number of predictions for the future. According to them, our timeline looked a little bit like this. By 1980, robots would serve as household servants. By 1995, we'd be able to artificially extend our human lives by 50 years. And by the turn of the millennium, the year 2000, we would be chatting with extraterrestrials. But yes, as Neil Bohr once said, uh, or possibly Mark Twain, or actually it could have been Nostradamus, prediction is difficult, especially about the future. One thing we do know for sure is the impact the relatively recent technological revolution has had. From the mobile phone in the 70s and 80s, to the iPod at the turn of the century, to the smart connected devices that are now in many of our homes. Who really knows what's to come? But there's an important question to consider. Over the next years and decades, technology will continue to change our lives. But will it be for good? Or will our increasing possibly imposed reliance on even smarter devices and even more digital platforms do more harm than good. This season has been shining the investigative spotlight on a whole range of tech and security concerns, but it's time to turn it on ourselves and examine our own digital lives. I'm Greg Foote, and this final witch investigation of the season asks, how much is too much tech?
Which Investigates is a podcast from the UK's Consumer Champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. This season, we found out, among other things, how hackable your home may be, how safe your digital money really is and whether you're being misled by fake reviews. If you've got something you'd like us to investigate in the future, I would love to hear it. If you're on social media, I'm at Greg Foote and which is at which UK, or you can email us on podcasts at witch.co.uk. Coming up, I learn how our recent wake-up call to some of the downsides of smart tech is actually following a familiar model. I mean, you think about the oil industry, they obviously powered huge industrial booms and brought kind of goods and services to people of, of a kind of thing. But obviously then we got pollution. And now we're seeing the same with big tech. You know, these services, they provide a hugely beneficial to us. They improve our lives, but also they have a huge cost in terms of data from scams to harmful content and all sorts of different things. I ask whether some of us are now addicted to our smart tech. And if so, who is going to help us break that addiction? Honestly, I don't think the regulation we've got is working at all. I would say with absolute confidence that the laws are spectacularly behind the technology in almost every area. And I should say, I'm not going to be all negative against increased tech use. It gets having more tech. In discussing how tech can positively transform our lives, one guest said something rather interesting. I've just written a white paper that we'll be releasing soon on the topic of the brain-computer interface, which is fascinating from a health perspective. And this is all about technology. The next evolutionary step, I guess, in humankind where technology will be embedded within our brains. In the introduction, I jokingly talked about a future great tech detox. And although there may be benefits to trying to lessen our use and our reliance on tech, something I'll be exploring later in the podcast, I just can't see a blanket revolt or a tech walkout happening. As we've seen during this season, our lives are becoming ever more intertwined with technology. It's here to stay, surely. But how we deal with it, how we interact with it and the role it plays in our future lives, those are aspects I think it is worth discussing. There is no disputing that tech has offered and continues to offer countless opportunities, invaluable support and increased efficiency. All things that can help our physical and mental health and also the health of the planet too. Although, as we've also seen, especially in the first sustainability season of this podcast, tech can also have the opposite effect. So where to start with this question? Well, how about with a quote from Jeremy Fleming, the chief of GCHQ, the UK's main security and intelligence service? Earlier this year, Jeremy said that technology and security face a moment of reckoning. He was referring to the influence China has as the world's leading supplier of the tech devices that more and more of us rely on and how the UK is now dependent on the supply of those from China. But that does make me consider my own dependence on technology. It's interesting that we kind of think technology is something separate, but actually technology is everything. You know, in a sense, we can't get away from technology. I think it's important for us to think about our relationship with that and think about whether we are coming too dependent on it. 
This is Andy Lachlan from Witch, a principal researcher in the product testing team. So he knows the ins and outs of tech and our use of it more than most. We started this season with a look at smart devices, asking how hackable our homes and the devices in them could be. We discussed how smart tech can be really helpful to those who are less mobile or appreciate being able to do things at a distance. But there's another area of smart tech that we didn't talk about. Wearable health tech. Things like step counters and smartwatches. They track things like your heart rate, calories burned, even the quality of your sleep. So I asked Kate Lawrence, a tech journalist and an expert in all things IoT, how helpful she thinks wearable health tech is. Are you giving people valuable information that enables them to make sustainable life choices? For example, my smartwatch can tell me I slept poorly. Okay, I probably know that because I was awake. So that's not really going to make me or help me do any kind of behavioural change, you know. But conversely, if it says to me, did you know when you sleep, you stop breathing for periods or your heart rate is strange or something is going on there, so you could have sleep apnea, for example, then you need to go and get that checked out. That's when it becomes valuable, when it's able to do these kind of Steps that make people take notice, it's giving people information that is actionable. Back in 2018, analyst firm Garter released a report which said that by 2021, 10% of people who use wearable technology will have changed their lifestyle to some extent, in turn lengthening their lifespan by an average of six months, which definitely feels like it's going to be one for the tech does good column. And using smart tech to improve our health goes much further than wearables. When you speak of robots that, for instance, help doing surgery, this is an area where there's more and more advances uh, going on. Pedro Lima is a fascinating guy. He's one of the world's leading experts in robotics, and he chatted to me from his lab in Lisbon, Portugal. More and more, there are elements of autonomy, which actually maybe may sound scaring, but they help the surgeons uh, doing their work better, more accurately. And the other area is when the robots, um, say in a hospital, interact with the patients. So it's not anymore like uh, direct physical contact intervention, uh, whatever, but it's robots that can, in a, in a pediatric hospital where we had some experience before, they can interact with the kids. They can make them feel better, play games with them, help teaching them stuff. But also there's a well-known interaction with autistic children, which even helps them improve their condition. And if you think the idea of robots helping to run our hospitals is futuristic, then hold on for what Matt Lewis from NCC Group told me. I've just written a white paper that we'll be releasing soon on the topic of the brain-computer interface, which is fascinating from a health perspective. And this is all about technology, the next evolutionary step, I guess, in humankind, where technology will be embedded within our brains. Excuse me, what is this? An episode of Chuck? The Empire Strikes Back? Blade Runner? Joe 90? Okay, all right, I'm going to stop with the uh, the sci-fi brain implant references. The fact that this, this thing embedded in your brain, which connects out to the outside world through Bluetooth or whatever, can send the brain patterns outwards that can be monitored by a lot of emerging AI and machine learning applications. And then they can send back stimuli back into the brain to stimulate the right parts of the brain, which might then allow someone with paralysis to suddenly be able to use their limbs again. There are also applications for treating depression where you can push in um, 
it back into the brain the right neural stimulus to alleviate uh, the usual brain activity associated with stress. So some really fascinating applications in that space in the health world. And you know, I, I can only see those as a positive in terms of giving people back more capabilities or a better quality of life than they've had previously. How impressive is that? As technology advances, the possibilities to help improve the lives of millions will only increase. But as we know and appreciate more and more, there is a flip side to the use of more and more tech. Andy from Which said this about wearable health tech. There are various different problems in terms of you know, misdiagnosis. We all ask Dr. Google when we've got a problem, but also it could increase a sense of anxiety or it actually could decrease your anxiety. So if you get a rating which seems fairly normal, but actually there's an accuracy in the setting or an accuracy in the reading, it could actually make you go, well, I'm all right. I won't go and engage with medical services. So we just need to use these services, like we said, we just generally with tech in a responsible way, but also a way that doesn't tip over to an over-reliance. Yeah, when I go to the gym and do a workout, I track it. For a cardio class, I'll be watching my heart rate and trying to keep it up, get it as high as possible, checking total calories burnt at the end. In fact, if I do a workout without having pressed go on my watch, then I feel frustrated that I haven't logged it. Kind of feel like it doesn't count. But I wouldn't say that's me dependent on it, though. But my phone, on the other hand, I mean, try as I might to put it to one side while I'm writing a script... I really struggled not to just check Twitter or Instagram or WhatsApp. Does that mean I'm addicted to my phone? I think the addiction part of it is interesting. There's been a lot written about it, particularly from people that have worked for platforms like Facebook. And they talk about the intentionality of making products and programs where there is an aim to engender a level of chemical reaction or emotional reaction to your engagement. Like the likes and the clicks is the common example. People get some type of chemical boost from those. So it becomes addictive in a very subtle way that becomes more, you know, long-term as you go on. And I think if you were to ask 20 of your friends, when you wake up in the morning, how long does it take you to look at your phone? Bar just looking at the time, because most of us don't have a clock or maybe a watch these days, it's going to be pretty close to waking. We'll probably in the first 10, 15 minutes. Again, I do try. Uh, Phone is in a different room, but yeah, I'll probably look at it within 10, 15 minutes. And it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we used to talk about addiction being exclusively linked to things like cigarettes and drugs and alcohol. How times have changed. Scientific research shows that being addicted to technology can affect our brain and cognitive health. We crave the little neurological kick you get when you receive a message or a like. And the more we use technology, the more neurological changes take place in the brain. In fact, one study even found that changes can be so substantial that tech addiction can be just as harmful as substance abuse. And it's not just the boost of the happy hormone serotonin that we should be wary of. I think a lot of people now have had a fairly in-depth experience of working remotely, for example, where you'll use a platform like perhaps Microsoft Teams or Slack or something like that. And that sound it makes when someone is messaging you, that type of alert becomes ingrained in your brain very fast and you start to dread it. That spikes your cortisol, your stress hormone. I've deliberately disabled those things on my phone because otherwise I'm getting those messages all the time. And it's this constant always on mentality 
of the digital self where we really struggle. That resonates really strongly with me. That idea of always being on. I was abroad the other week and fair enough, it was a work trip, yes, but I was still messaging producer Rob about the podcast when I was having thoughts about it over the weekend. Um, Sorry, Rob. He did, though, diligently dig into the research and found a paper that talks about how the rise of video calls has also had an effect on our mental health. Something he's now going to fill me in on via a video call. Yeah, the irony of that very much not lost on me at all. In August, researchers at Cambridge University published this paper that I've been having a look at. It's called The Impact of Video Conferencing Applications on Mental Health. Catchy, does what it says on the tin. They estimated that by the end of 2019, an impressive 10 million people a month were using a Zoom meeting. Sounds like a lot. Yes. Four months later, though, by the end of April 2020, I think we all know what happened by then, that number had jumped to 300 million. Well, that's a few. 300 million a month. Yeah, unsurprising. But yeah, in four months, from 10 million to 300 million people a month. Now, the researchers spoke to lots of people for this paper, and they talked about mental tiredness and the anxiety as well of some of these calls. Yeah, I mean, that's something that lots of us have experienced. uh, Zoom fatigue, isn't it? Yeah, or, and I prefer this one. Well, I don't prefer it. That seems like the wrong thing to say. I prefer this I prefer this phrasing, at least. Zoom gloom. Mm, nice. Zoom gloom. Yes, I've got that. <laughs> what, just from speaking to me? Or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you also get the mental exhaustion if you're multitasking. Now, I definitely do this. It's the idea of doing something else while you're on the call. You do do that, don't you? Yep. No, I definitely do do it, especially when you're talking to me on a video call. You're talking, I'm scrolling on a different tab. But that does increase mental exhaustion. Yeah, and the thing about working from home um, is that it also makes it even harder to separate work time from family time, doesn't it? Or me time. Yeah, the team wrote about this as well. They said that before the pandemic, our, as they put it, spheres of life were quite separated. So work, social life and family. But now, thanks to technology, they're all happening in the same place. And they're suggesting that because the boundaries have become blurred, it may make us more susceptible to negative feelings. Mm, Yeah. Thanks, Rob. Right. We better end this video call, eh? See ya. Au revoir. Might be worth mentioning this. I just read this this morning. Um, A couple of days ago, Instagram said that they would issue a warning to users if they spend too long on the app, uh, apparently in a bid to stop them becoming addicted. But yet last night, head of Instagram, Adam Masseri, was being questioned by Senator Richard Blumenthal for a Senate subcommittee hearing, and he told Blumenthal he does not think Instagram is addictive. Not sure how both those things can be true, but okay. So tech can, of course, improve our lives. It can even save our lives. But the increased use of it, dare I say reliance on it, even possibly addiction to it, is affecting not just our mental health, but also the makeup of our brains. But, again, does that matter if the tech is improving our lives? Remote or hybrid working has had its mental impact, but it saves us from the daily commute and it allows us to spend more time at home. Is it the lesser of two evils? When we talk about the amount of tech, is it too much tech in the sense that it bothers us? Or is it too much tech that it's something that we we simply don't notice? An interesting question there from Kate, and one that brings up another concern around using more and more tech – 
Earlier in the season, I explored the fact that your smart devices, sitting there innocuously in the corner, perhaps, as Kate says, unnoticed, they're always listening. And they could be recording. They could be sharing, whether intentionally or not, your data to third parties. Now, we choose whether to bring those devices into our home. And more and more of us are doing so. In fact, this year, a business research company report predicted that the smart home market is expected to double by 2025 and be worth a whopping $120 billion. But what about the tech that we don't actively personally choose to bring into our lives? Is some of that tech too much tech? For years in the UK particularly, there's been concerns around the proliferation of CCTV and how sort of watched we are. I think we're one of the highest CCTV per capita countries in the world. This is Matt Lewis from NCC Group again. But of course, there'll be a lot more privacy impacting technology in the future smart cities. We touched on the idea of a smart city in episodes one and two of this season. Somewhere where various tech and infrastructure talk and interact with each other, potentially autonomously. Think traffic lights monitoring the flow of cars or blocks of buildings working together on energy generation and heating. And as Matt says... Some of this current tech, and definitely a lot of the future tech that is being suggested, involves tracking members of that city. CCTV, audio type applications, sensing devices that interact with our smartphones. You can imagine it would be quite easy to track a specific individual as they move through a city or a smart area. So the the privacy concerns are also very much there around smart cities because the whole issue around consent um, comes into play and how do you actually manage that when you're in a physical place like how can I as a citizen give or not give my consent to be tracked or videoed in a massive space full of cameras and microphones etc it's a very interesting slash difficult problem I think but you can sort of see that that's where things are heading And I guess we just need to hope that the regulators and legislators keep pace with the technology landscape. This feels like it's more than the personal data and privacy conversations that we've been having regarding our own personally owned devices. This is about how to look after the data and privacy of a crowd or a whole city's worth of people. And I think this is something we definitely need to consider for the future, if not now. So how can we avoid or deal with these concerns? Well, some people have opted to move off-grid, which can mean fully separating themselves from being plugged into traditional infrastructure like electricity. But it can also mean cutting ties to smart devices and the digital world. But how doable is that? And if you don't want to go full cold turkey, how doable is simply stepping back a few small steps from the digital world? If you want to participate in digital life, it's very difficult to opt out of particular service providers. For example, people will try to opt out of all Google services. That can be quite difficult, particularly when you get down to the the brass knuckles of things like maps. And then you look at things like you might have an app that you use on your phone. It's not a Google app, but it shares its information with Google or It shares its information with an advertiser who then shares that information with Google. So you have this web of kind of connected products and platforms and therefore it becomes very difficult when we talk about choosing to opt out 
The notion of how tricky it is to untangle from this web is backed up by a 2017 study from the Pew Research Centre. In their paper, The Internet of Things Connectivity Binge, that we've quoted a few times in this podcast, they conclude that, quote, resistance is futile. Businesses will penalise those who disconnect. Social processes reward those who connect. Fully withdrawing is extremely difficult, maybe impossible, end quote. And what a quote it is. I mean, suggesting that we will reap the benefits or experience the costs, depending on what we decide. And here is an even darker suggestion. What if we've already gone past the point of no return? As I discovered in our previous episode on how our online activity is being tracked, the advertisers, the sellers, the big tech firms, they already know so much. We are data machines. In terms of any collective bargaining power, we don't really have enough. However, Kate doesn't talk about the woes of our data being out there. Instead, she talks about the idea of selling our data ourselves, of choosing who can have access to it. I like the idea, you know. We could share our data for the benefit of others, sharing our medical history to contribute to research, for example. Or we could share our data as part of a job application to big ourselves up as a responsible person, or we could simply sell it for a bit of extra cash. I think I like the idea, because then I'm in control of who has access to my data. But would the tech companies go for it, especially when they're already making things difficult? Privacy policies are sometimes like the works of Shakespeare. They're written in legalese. Um, They're often very hard to understand. Invariably, what we generally will be like, click accept, accept, accept. Just let me get on with whatever I need to do, which is obviously a real problem because ultimately, you know, in that agreement is everything that is about consent, you know. And, And obviously there are rules and requirements around how those things should be written and how agreements are presented to users. But obviously, if if no one really reads it, it is a bit of a problem. So we do need to see a bit of a move to a nuanced consent. Increasingly, this one-size-fits-all approach to privacy and consent is becoming outdated, especially given the variety of the types of data we share and how massive and unwieldy these firms can be. As we've mentioned previously on the podcast, the UK GDPR, our current legislation on privacy, expires in 2025, which, along with many other organisations, are in the process of responding to the government's consultation on what comes next, with a focus on what we think will be most important to keep us consumers safe online. Because if the big tech firms aren't looking after our best interests, quite frankly, someone's got to. There's one final angle to this question of how much tech is too much tech that I would like to explore. Season one of Witch Investigates focused on claims of sustainability, rifling through the research to see what actually delivers on the promise of genuine eco effect and what is actually just greenwashing. One topic I explored was mobile phone obsolescence, the suggestion that phones are designed to fail, or, as I discovered, it's more about the fact that they stop getting software updates after a few years, and they're essentially designed so you can't easily repair them yourself. Although Apple has recently announced that they're going to be providing parts, tools and manuals. As I explored in the electric car investigation, more tech means more mind resources – So there's clearly an important sustainability angle to this question. And again, it doesn't have a simple answer. 
smart meters, for example, might actually save you energy or allow you to run the electricity or the electrical items in your home in a more environmentally friendly way. And of course, technology being used to get those efficiency gains reduces things like carbon impact. Again, in the context of a smart city, you you can imagine a number of applications that inform citizens about where they should go or how they should behave, and that can reduce their impact as they move to the city. So I think that's a big one. I, I can imagine that we'll see a lot of positive labeling and applications around environmental savings. So yes, having too much tech can clearly have a negative impact on the planet. But the suggestion here is if used well, it can have a positive impact too. Kate expands on the idea from one house to a whole city, what's called the 15-minute city. The idea is the 15-minute city. It is very simple. It's that we should have a 15-minute journey by bike, foot, public transport to most things we need in our lives. There should be social avenues. There should be access to bigger public transport links, obviously, things like universities and childcare and shopping centres and things like that. You have a bunch of different transport options when you leave your home each day or before you leave your home, and it helps you make good decisions that are sustainable. The 15-minute city is more of an urban planning tool. However, smart tech could play a key role. Monitoring routes, for example, managing public transport to avoid where it's busy, that would reduce idling time, reduce fuel use. So it's clear that tech can have positive environmental impacts in future cities. But, and I will hand this over to robotics expert Pedro to bring the but this time. Technology, I think, will be one of the most important ways of us handling all these uh, issues, particularly the climatic ones. But, uh, of course, it can also bring itself problems. I mean, uh, say, if you stop using uh, fossil fuels, but uh, you use batteries that you don't know or, or any other type of renewable energies where you have to dispose materials and you don't know exactly how to do it without causing damage, this will be a problem. And as Matt explains, it's not just the disposal of the tech, it's also the everyday use of it. Even though some of it might purport to be helping us to save on energy, I suppose there will be examples of computational devices that are quite hungry in terms of the computational power that they have and therefore the energy that they draw on. And I I was reading this morning about how IBM are advancing a lot on just quantum computing chips, which will bring amazing, significant quantum compute power to computing devices. And you can imagine it won't be too long before that's embedded in smart devices. But that will be particularly power hungry because it's a very different way of operating from traditional computer chips. I think there will be a lot of demand on energy for compute devices in the future, which will inevitably be an issue if we haven't switched enough to green methods of energy production. A few years back, Swedish researcher Anders Andre caused shock among the tech community when he estimated that by 2025, information and communication technology could account for more than 20% of global energy use. And if that energy isn't being produced by renewable means, too much tech is going to have a significant impact on climate change. Now, that's not to say it couldn't be renewably powered. The largest data centre in the US is now claiming to be a zero emission facility. Oh, and on that issue of software updates expiring and we consumers being too keen to get the latest model and then just chuck away our one year old or one year young one. Here's Andy. 
all technology has a lifespan. But when you've got software extension, there are different concerns to take into mind. And that primarily comes into how long that will be supported. So if it's been built with a certain type of technology that at some point the company goes, well, we can no longer support that. We can no longer issue updates to it. We can no longer push security patches to this device. It becomes effectively obsolete. And at that stage, that thing really is not fit for anything other than potentially landfill or um, uh, being moved into a, a kind of recycling if it's even possible. So I think it's all about really companies supporting those products for as long as possible. Which has recently helped influence a government bill aimed at combating this. Just a couple of weeks ago, the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill was presented to Parliament. It prevents the sale of internet-connected devices that do not meet baseline security requirements, including making sure that devices keep receiving security updates, and that can help keep them in use for longer without putting our safety at risk. Worth mentioning here, too, perhaps, that we have got a simple security update checker on our website. You just select your handset and then it tells you how long your device is going to have those security updates supported for. As always, you'll find the link in the show notes. Before I wrap up, I want to tell you about another part of that catchily titled Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Bill, uh, which I believe the cool kids are shortening to PSTI Bill. Um, Actually, no, they're not. No, 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 that's not good. Anyway, here is another line from it. The bill will also speed up the rollout of faster and more reliable broadband and mobile networks by making it easier for operators to upgrade and share infrastructure. If we're going to make more tech available, it needs to not only work and not wreck the planet, it also needs to be widely available. As with all aspects of technology, we have to make sure everybody can access them. We also have to make sure that good technology isn't the uh, preserve of just luxury end of the market. So, you, you you know, people who've not got much money to spend or no money to spend at all have no access to that kit. And um, we saw that certainly in the pandemic with a lot of children getting educated at, at home. You know, if you've got a really nice laptop or desktop at home and you, you can just jump straight into that, you've got an advantage. Whereas if you haven't, that's um, and obviously a clear disadvantage and it, and it means that that person's not getting the best education they could. You know, likewise, we don't want a situation, as we've seen with some phone brands, where they'll support a more premium handset much longer with a, with updates and, and then the, the lower end models, which appeal to a, sort of an audience on a, on a tighter budget, are kind of sacrificed as such. So we have to make sure that any change in technology brings everybody with it. You know, everybody can access good technology, everybody can access uh, good security, and, and everybody can access products which protect their privacy. And there's another side to this important point. Tech doesn't just need to be affordable, it needs to be accessible and usable for all. The UK has an ageing population. When the latest figures were released in 2019, around a fifth were aged 65 or over, which equates to more than 12 million people. And it's important that they aren't left behind. The exclusion thing is quite a problem, uh, and not just around the availability of tech, but also on things like the way that we can only do certain things through tech, which I find quite annoying. I have an elderly father who's, you know, he can use some computers and smartphones, but is still a little bit nervous about a number of things. And a lot of what he used to be able to do physically through, you know, filling in forms with pen and paper, which is what he's a lot more used to, he's now forced to go down more online electronic routes, which just makes him nervous for a number of reasons. A lot of this tech is made by quite young people in 
quite young, energetic companies, and they're probably just building it around how they interact with and perceive life. You know, so it's probably a bit of an oversight around actually, well, who is this technology for? Are we being inclusive enough of the full range and diversity of people across ages and ethnicities in how they would you know, want to or use these things that we're creating? What a lot of the companies do now, for example, is there's no sort of manuals, as in a paper manual you put in the drawer in the kitchen or something like that. Firstly, you have to start with the QR code. This assumes that you've got access to, obviously, a, a suitable device like a smartphone or perhaps a web browser or something like that. But maybe you're on holidays and you go to an Airbnb. This happened to me in Australia. They had a smart oven that had all kinds of bells and whistles in terms of being able to do different cooking styles. And it was a connected oven. But there was no way for us as a, a holiday user to access either the app or the instruction manual. So we literally had to go online and spend a few hours contacting the company and saying, hey, how do we use it? For me, all this is right there at the heart of what we're talking about today. If technology is to bring with it all the potential advantages that we've been talking about, it needs to not only be available to everyone, but it also needs to work. And we need to trust it and the manufacturers or tech giants behind it. Honestly, I don't think the regulation we've got is working at all. I would say with absolute confidence that the laws are spectacularly behind the technology in almost every area. I mean, you think about the oil industry, they obviously powered huge industrial booms and brought kind of goods and services to people of other kind of thing. But obviously then we got pollution. And now we're seeing the same with big tech. You know, these services, they provide a hugely beneficial to us. They improve our lives, but also they have a huge cost in terms of data. They can channel potentially different versions of detriment from scams to harmful content and all sorts of different things. So there's a need there to have oversight and there's neither there to have control over it. There's also a need there to, to have a bit of a moment of reckoning. These services are not going to go away, but they must be held accountable. Um, they must have regulation. So how much is too much tech? Well, we're each going to answer that one differently, I think. I don't think there's a sinister plan by all the big tech companies. I do get a sense that they're doing it to try and make people's lives better and easier. They're looking at making people's lives safer. They're looking at making people's lives healthier. They're looking at expanding people's horizons socially. I don't think we have too much tech in our lives, but I think we have to reframe our relationship with it and make sure that it's not an unhealthy relationship. What's become clear again and again through this season is that we can't talk about our relationship with tech and the benefits that it can bring us without considering how it is doing that. As a customer, we love convenience, but at what cost? What data is being collected about us? And what's more, what is being done with that data and who has access to it? A lot of that is in the hands of the tech giants and I don't think they are going anywhere soon. We know the impact that social media is having on us, but we keep using it. The tech giants pay lip service to looking out for our mental health, but is that their driver for change? Or is that led more by business success? What I think we don't necessarily know is the impact or risks that lots of smart tech brings with it when we welcome it into our homes. But each of us is going to have to make our own decision about the level of risk on that convenience cost spectrum. Plus, as we've seen today, there are other things to consider too, especially the tech's impact on our planet. And again, who is responsible for that? 
Should we keep using it until it breaks and then repair it and then keep using it again? If manufacturers cared about the planet, why would they keep releasing enticing new devices every year? Who is responsible to push this change? I mean, clearly, we need to recognise that our actions have impacts, but we also need regulation on the tech manufacturers and the platforms too. Yes, seeing who's at the door or turning lights on with your voice feels like fun, but it's genuinely life-changing for some people. Yes, decentralised digital money has the power to rebalance economies, but... It's only through regulation and through building trust in our smart devices that we can be fully wholeheartedly optimistic about our future relationship with tech. Thanks for listening to this episode of Witch Investigates. If you enjoyed this season, I would super appreciate it if you could put up a quick review on Apple Podcasts. It's always lovely to see what you liked, and it does show others that it's worth their time listening to the episodes as well. But even though this second season is now officially over, if you would like to get in touch, please do. If you've got a thought or a question, send it over. If you're on social media, you can reach me at Greg Foote and which are at Witch UK. Or you can reach us by email on podcast at witch.co.uk. Finally, a little festive favour, if I may. If you've got a few minutes to spare over the holidays, please do head to witch.co.uk forward slash investigates and fill out a quick questionnaire on the season. Today's episode was presented by me, Greg Foote, written and produced by me and Rob Lilly. Editing and original music is by Eric Briar, and our executive producer is Angus Farker. And a big end-of-season special thank you goes to Richard Headland, Paul Lester, Kate Bevan and Andy Lachlan. And also to you, of course, for listening. Thanks. See ya. 